I usually start this show with a lighthearted narrative about something trivial going on in my life, but I'm finding that a bit difficult at the moment. Last week, my grandpa passed away at the age of 96. We were very close and would speak almost every day, and I'm already feeling his absence. I won't share all of my thoughts about my grandpa here. I could make a whole separate podcast about him. But I've never met anyone quite as charismatic and confident as him. Once, before he went on vacation to London, he wrote a letter to the Queen of England. He began the letter, Dear Queen, and asked if she'd join him and my grandma for tea. Now, my grandpa was far from a political dignitary. He was a wallpaper manufacturer from New York. But I think he really thought there was the possibility that she might accept. After all, most people who knew him liked him. The senior correspondence officer at Buckingham Palace sent a letter back, saying that the Queen thanked him for his kind invitation, but regretfully would not be able to make the engagement. Oh well, her loss. He got a good story out of it, though, and my grandpa was a marvelous storyteller. Not to mention a terrific handicapper at the racetrack, and a person who knew how to love and be loved. Not to mention a terrific handicapper at the racetrack, and a person who knew how to love and be loved. If you have to go, dying at the age of 96 after being healthy well into your 90s is definitely the way to do it. But I know that right now, many people aren't that fortunate. My grandpa didn't die of COVID, but his passing has made me think of all the families who are feeling the emotional void left by a person who's no longer a phone call away. If that's you, I hope you're finding ways to focus on the great things those people left behind. The love, the stories, and maybe even letters to the queen. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. You've probably heard that a number of states around the country are seeing spikes in COVID cases. As Florida, Texas, and Arizona start dealing with these new outbreaks, we at 538 wondered about the best ways to communicate public health messages. What gets people's attention and changes behavior? And what doesn't? I spoke about this over Skype with Dr. Jay Van Babel, a professor of psychology at New York University. I study the intersection between social identity, which is how people identify with groups, and morality. And I study that in every walk of life, from uh, examining how this plays out in social media, on Twitter, uh, how people talk to one another and who they share information from, to all the way in the lab, uh, looking inside the brains of people as they see members of their own group versus other groups. Now. What I've started doing uh, is trying to apply those insights and that research lens to look at issues around COVID-19. And so that means issues of polarization and partisanship. It means uh, studying issues of morality and when you're willing to do something that might be an inconvenience for yourself because it helps everybody else around you. And also uh, issues of leadership are really critical to managing groups and getting people to do the right thing. So what I've been trying to do is take the lessons from the research that I've been doing for many, many years and apply them in a domain of uh, urgent public health right now. 
Recently, Van Bavel worked with psychologists, epidemiologists, legal scholars, sociologists, and more to publish a paper in Nature Human Behavior called Using Social and Behavioral Science to Support COVID-19 Pandemic Response. So this paper is obviously extremely wide ranging, but one thing you talk about um, throughout is what we've learned from past pandemics about how public health crises influence human behavior. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what we have learned? Yeah, so we have experts who had written about and studied uh, how the Ebola epidemic was dealt with. So for example, they wrote a section in our paper um, focusing on how you can engage local leaders Uh, as they had done in Africa during the Ebola pandemic to get people to engage in the right health procedures. Um, Often, people might not trust national leaders or, or, uh, you know, know, the World Health Organization or something like that. And and what you need to do to reach out to those people is to connect with, like, local religious leaders or community leaders, people they trust on the ground who are going to connect them with the best public health information. And so we talked a lot about how that leadership takes place, how that unfolds in communities, um, and kind of what types of messages they can construct and who they should give these messages to, to have them be maximally effective. Well, once you do find a leader who is trustworthy in a community, how do you get um, effective messaging to them? And what makes a message more effective than some other type of message? Yeah, so we live in an unusual time, as I'm sure you know. Um, In the age of social media, this pandemic is unfolding in ways that are different from previous pandemics. Uh, So we have uh, weaponized misinformation, conspiracy theories, and fake news circulating uh, at a mass scale. Understanding how misinformation flows online and in social networks is really critical um, because that's what public health officials are up against right now in a way that's different, I think, especially in scale and speed from previous pandemics. But there is an enormous body of research on effective science communication and persuasion. And so we had some of the world's experts on those topics um, try to distill what they thought were the best pieces of advice I'll just say and try to say in one sentence uh, what might be most effective. It is to have people who are members of your group communicate and role model the most uh, relevant health behaviors, and then also for you to see them rewarded, um, that those are valued in the community that you're in. And so if you can do those things in a message, then it's more likely to be powerful because people are going to see someone who they trust, who looks like them or feels similar to them, doing the right things so they can see it role modeled by that person um, and done in an effective, efficient way. And you just have to hammer home those messages over and over again uh, to make them as effective as possible. You know, one of the things we're interested in right now is um, what we can learn from New York and the the COVID response in New York about how to effectively tackle it in places like Florida, Texas, Arizona, now that we're seeing spikes there. I'm wondering from your perspective and knowing what you know about how to message effectively, what were some of the most effective um, public health messages that came out about any aspect of this outbreak in New York City that really seemed to make a difference? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, New York was the world's hotspot for the pandemic. Um, We did, at that point, uh, benefit from incredible leadership from our governor, Andrew Cuomo. And so I'll just point to a couple things he did that 
were entirely consistent with our paper. Um, He, for example, got on TV every single day and drove home the same messages. He was transparent. He took responsibility. He was posting the data even when it was uh, horrific for New York. Um, Then he really uh, leveraged scientific insights and had a lot of, clearly a lot of scientific advisors. Day to day, he was presenting new data, um, new lessons from science and building policies around that in real time and communicating them clearly. Um, Another thing he tried to do was create uh, powerful messaging that had like role models and identity baked into it. So I, I believe it was his daughter who had this competition for people to create uh, ads to encourage people to wear masks and engage in uh, distancing. And some of these ads that people sent in that were the finalists were incredibly creative. Um, So they'd show, for example, people out in a public space, like on the subway, and, uh, you know, one guy is not wearing a mask, everybody else is, and he has a shirt that just says, that guy. (laughs) You know, you instantly realize, like, how obnoxious somebody like that is in a situation where they're putting everybody at risk. Um, There was another great ad that showed an incredible diversity of New Yorkers wearing masks. Um, and so they were young and old and middle-aged and, and black and Hispanic and white and Asian. And it just, it, no matter who you were watching that video, you'd see someone who looked like you wearing the mask. And so there were a couple of these finalists that they selected and they showed during one of his briefings, um, which was designed, I think, to kind of hit a- as many people as it could, that people like you are doing this. And it turns out that um, over and over for decades and many, many studies, turns out to be one of the most powerful things for shaping behavior is social norms. If you see people like you doing something, you're more likely to do it, even if you don't want to do it. You just kind of unconsciously, as humans are social creatures, we just kind of do it to fit in um, or because we don't want to be left out or look bad. And so they really uh, created advertisements that harnessed the insights from uh, social psychology and social norms and behavior change in uh, simple and incredible ways. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned is that uh, Cuomo um, would talk about the numbers. He'd talk about sort of some of these fairly terrifying statistics about how many people were getting COVID and how many people were dying. And um, I'm wondering how one thing you talk about in the paper is negative framing. So how does negative framing um, influence people's behavior in a crisis? Yeah, so one thing that can happen uh, is that people get panicked about risk. (laughs) Um, But what we find, and our our research suggests is more common, is that people are remarkably resilient um, and that giving them the information can inspire them to work together to um, do the right thing. And... Uh, Cuomo, I think, leaned into that in in a way that he wasn't worried about causing panic. And so he just gave people the raw data over and over and over again. Um, He also pointed out racial disparities that were happening. Uh, New York was one of the first places that was addressing those and thinking about them Um, and and trying to grapple with the fact that uh, the issues of racism that are baked into our country were mirroring themselves in the way the pandemic was Uh, infecting and and killing people. And so he also went into these communities and had representatives go into communities in New York, um, into religious communities and minority communities, and have leaders in those communities speak to their congregations and and citizens. And so he was doing all of these things. And it actually is, I guess, consistent with like a 538 model. He just looked at the data, 
tried to understand a reality and then designed a response based on that reality. And so I don't want to suggest that what happened in New York was perfect. Uh, there was a lot of mistakes, especially early. Um, but how it ended up being dealt with in the end uh, and how it's being dealt with now, I think, is uh, one of the models for the country. Um, I, I w- would have hoped other parts of the country would have learned a lesson from us, but hopefully they can now. I'm wondering, though, if there were specific ways that messages were conveyed. So once we did have appropriate information, once we did have up-to-date science, um, if there were if there were things that public health officials or politicians uh, said or ways they released certain policies that made it less made made adhering to those policies less compelling. Yes. So let me focus on that at the national level. The best example is obviously the president and his and his briefings on this. Um, early on, he was doing these briefings where everybody was crowded in on the stage. And so they're telling people to engage in distancing, but you watch them on screen and they aren't. Or they were all touching the microphone at one point without gloves. Um, we're telling people to wash their hands as if it can spread. Uh, that way, and then you're watching your national leaders doing that. Um, very few of them. Anthony Fauci now wears a mask at at every uh, briefing, but uh, the president doesn't. The vice president rarely does. The messaging around these and the role modeling and the symbolism has been almost the textbook version of what you would not want to do in these types of situations. And so when you look, and we have data now around the world, we're collaborating with uh, people in 67 other countries to study how this is happening in other parts of the world. And we have to remember the U.S. is an outlier. We have uh, dropped the ball here on this more than pretty much any other country on Earth. Um, Brazil now is quickly catching up, but the U.S. has had the most cases and infections, I believe, last time I looked at the data. And so it's easy to realize that this is a problem of leadership. They pretty much got everything wrong and, and leaders in other countries got it right. And you're now, it's this is not an issue of speculation. I mean, you can see the data, you can see the infection rates, you can see the mortality rates. Um, and, and so it's pretty obvious to me, given all the data and everything we've seen, what's happening. And you, we can measure, you know, political scientists are measuring this in survey after survey after survey. And we see it in distancing behavior, you know, of millions and millions and millions of people in their real daily life. So um, these things, unfortunately, are not a mystery and, and we should have known better. One thing you talk about in the paper is um, how independent versus interdependent cultures respond to a crisis. Um, and apart from American leadership, I'm wondering what you think. Um, if, I'm wondering if you think there are particular American cultural values that have allowed this virus to spread as far as it has. Yeah. So we have a whole section on culture in our paper, and uh, we have world-leading cultural psychologists who uh, collaborated on it and helped write that section. And uh, a couple things they focused on. One was individualism versus collectivism. The United States is a very individualistic culture. And you see that in a lot of the rhetoric around, I don't want to wear a mask, I have freedom or liberty, or it's my right to do what I want. There's research on this. In the countries where that are more collectivistic, which means people care more about fitting in social norms, um, those countries, uh, that comes with certain trade-offs and costs, um, but it has a benefit for coordinating collective action um, in a pandemic. And so those countries are more willing to people in those countries feel obligated to wear a mask if everybody else is or if they're told to do so. Um, They're not making the same arguments about their individual freedoms being impinged upon. 
So that is uh, a problem in individualistic cultures uh, in general, and, and ours is a particularly individualistic one. But I have to say, it, for, for in this context, and for many people, it, it's pathological, it's dangerous, not just for them, but it puts all their family and friends and community at, at risk and, uh, and in danger. It's so hard when you go about your life thinking about your own individual risk or the risk maybe of just the people in your immediate family. How do you fundamentally change your thinking and convey a message or like receive a message from the government about your responsibility and everyone's health? Yeah, I, I mean, one thing obviously is to communicate what the real risks are. Um, in an unflinching, consistent manner by people who are trusted and respected in those environments. Um, another people also, I think, is to, we, we t- you know, I focus a lot on data, uh, as does 538, um, but people learn through stories. And so I find it really helpful to communicate a story that is consistent with what all the data is saying. Um, so talk about stories where someone didn't wear a mask and thought it was their right and they went into a bar and infected 100 people. And what that those people went through when they got infected, they lost jobs, they were in the hospital, some died, some recovered, but might never be the same or their bodies or lungs were damaged. Um, So those are the types of things I think that we need to communicate. Another element that we spoke about in our papers, uh, the language of morality. And again, instead of thinking about it through the lens of uh, are you free to do it or not, we need to talk about it in terms of what is the morally right thing to do. And people in our communities who are considered moral leaders um, should be the ones voicing that and modeling it um, in in ways that connect it to value systems and beliefs. You talked about how uh, messages that include um, appeals to people's morality are extremely effective and how moral leadership is one way that... um, we can we can get clear messages across about the communal risks of this virus. I do wonder, though, about how associating how linking morality to this virus could have some unseen consequences and how um, shaming of certain people might end up being a result. I mean, I don't know what you think about that in itself. Maybe maybe you think shaming is is totally fine. I, I'm not a fan of that public shaming spectacle that we have. Um, it's psychologically satisfying for us to see somebody shamed and it's psychologically devastating for them. So I, that's an old part of human nature. Um, I'm I'm not adverse to kind of small, low-level shaming. Like if someone's not wearing a mask and you're in the grocery store with them to to make a comment um, in a way that would get them to wear the mask, I do worry about moralizing it. Although I would say that the the harm of shaming is really small relative to the harm of people getting the disease. And so if there was ever a case for shaming, (laughs) I think the pandemic is the case for it. Because, you know, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people around the world die, and it looks like hundreds of thousands more will die. And so I I do think that this might be a particular case where uh, shaming is maybe necessary and relevant. And uh, what I would say the key word is proportionate to, to the harm that you do by not, you know, wearing a mask inside. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. 
That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer.